may be seated. Boy, this song gets me every time. I remember when I was first a Christian, I went home for my very first Christmas from college, and I remember driving through the cornfields of central Illinois and late at night and hearing that song and just, for the first time, I think, kind of realized we can worship this Christmas. It's not just sentimentality. And so we're glad that you're here with us. We're glad that you're able to be here. Some of you are brand new Christians, and this is the first Christmas that you're celebrating as Christians. And we rejoice with you that for the very first time, you're rejoicing in this son who was born, that you know this king, and you're delighting in him. And so my name is Jeff Brewer. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Fellowship. We're so glad that you've all joined us here this morning. I have a few announcements I just want to make sure to let everybody know about before we spend some time in God's Word. First, we have a uh, Christmas service on December 26th, so we'll be having our normal services here. On Sunday morning, December 26th, we'll be in the downstairs church office space, and so it'll be on the website. You can pick up um, cards out here, and it's going to be an opportunity for you to invite friends and neighbors, maybe uh, co-workers that will be in town. Maybe you'll have extended family that will be in town as well. And so Jonathan Carswell will be giving a, uh, an evangelistic talk. We'll be singing together as well. And so again, that's going to be on Sunday morning, December 26th, the day after Christmas. Uh, so make sure to pick up some of these cards back in the back. Also in the back are uh, giveaway books by Alistair Begg. We mentioned these last week. We have enough for anybody who wants one of these. If you have, again, friends or neighbors or coworkers that you're looking for something to give them, this is a great book to be able to put in people's hands because it's, it's talking about four songs that bring you to the heart of Christmas. And it's a great evangelistic tool. And so they're back in the back. Take as many as you would like and be able to give away. And so... Um, also, uh, let me make sure I have everything here, uh, uh, gift cards for Cam and Tori. As you've seen in the, um, the newsletters that we've been sending out as well, we want to continue to serve Cam and Tori and little Bailey as she's in the NICU. And so you can give those to Allie Jones or to Stephanie Bartolazzi or to, I'm blanking on the third name all of a sudden, Lindsay Tully. Thank you. Um, so here's a fun story. Last week, I forgot... Uh, I, forgot, I forgot Stephanie's name in that whole announcement, and I said Megan Cockrum. That was just the first name that came to me. So when, when in doubt, just make stuff up, apparently, is my, my mantra up here. And um, afterwards, you know, we had the choir here last Sunday morning, and some students from the choir came up and said, is that the same Megan Cockrum that moved away to Philadelphia? Is, is that her? We used to have her as our teacher back in middle school when, she, when Megan taught down the school, so, so down the street. And so they got a chance to connect with one another again, and so... My mistakes, sovereignty of God, everything comes together. So, but you can give gift cards. We'd love to continue to support Tori and Cam. Well, we, before we spend some time in God's word, would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you know all things, you have planned all things, you are before all things. And we thank you that as we will see today from Colossians, in your Son, all things hold together. And so we thank you for Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to work in us, to shape us as we look to your word, as we think about these glorious truths about your Son. Father, may you get the honor and may you get the glory and may you shape each of us. Father, I pray in particular for someone who might be here and they're investigating Christianity, pray your word would be clear, your Holy Spirit would be at work, and we pray these things by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, the, the other night, I mean, I spoke already about driving in kind of central Illinois, but the other night I was driving on the highway right when that uh, huge storm that kind of went from Kentucky with all the loss of life there and the tornadoes all the way up to, to our area here. And as I was driving, I was on the highway, and the rain, as if you were out at that time, you know, it was going sideways, and the wind just kind of would come in huge gusts. And uh, I came up on, to an overpass, and uh, as I was driving, I had my hazard lights on. I probably should have pulled over, but I just didn't know it was going to keep getting increasingly worse and worse. And, and a gust of wind kind of grabbed the car, and, and I hit some water, and it just felt like I slid like four or five feet over to one direction. And, and so as I was th- sitting there, or as I was driving, um, I was thinking about, I was already planning to start this sermon here this morning uh, from the storm that Mark describes in Mark chapter 4. But little did I know I was going to get this real-life example of, of a storm. And in Mark chapter 4, if you remember, Jesus is with his disciples, and they get into the boat, it's nighttime, and they're going to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And as they get into the boat and as they're going across the sea, uh, as often would happen there with the Sea of Galilee because of the way the the mountains would kind of, storms would just pop up very quickly. And so unexpectedly, especially in a time before meteorology and kind of knowing what was coming, but especially even today, these storms can come out of nowhere seemingly. And as they're out on the sea, this storm comes up, the wind I can just imagine, the same as what I experienced the other day. And, and the disciples are getting a little frantic. The, the boat is taking on water, and they look around for Jesus. He's nowhere to be found, and finally they see him. He's in the stern, he's in the back of the boat, and he's asleep on a cushion. And, and I kind of thought, you know, if, if Jesus would have been asleep in the back seat of the car, I, I would have woken him up, and I would have said, like, Jesus, wake up. Can you, do you see it? This is crazy. The disciples are a little bit more uh, um, bold with Jesus. They, they wake him up and they, they ask him a very kind of direct, they kind of accuse him. They say, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're perishing? And, and after he had awakened fully, it says, or he kind of rubbed sleep from his eyes, just as easily as somebody might turn off loud music or turn off a light switch in a room, Jesus says, peace, be still. And you can imagine this scene like where it's just so crazy And yet then it's immediately sea-like glass, calm, quiet. And their response in that moment was, who is this? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? No, that's the exact right question. Who is Jesus? But later in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus actually turns that question back on them. Not only are they asking, who is Jesus?, He's asking them, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And and I would say, I would like to um, submit to us here this morning that those two questions are the single most, two most um, important questions that every person on this planet needs to answer. And they're two questions that at Christmas we're brought face to face with. Who is Jesus? And who do I say that he is? So listen again to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 that we looked at last week, and we said we'd be spending our time during Advent in these just two verses. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we saw last week, but when the fullness of time had come, and so we talked about how God has a design for history, that he has planned all these things. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, 
born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that second phrase is what we're going to focus on this morning. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And we're going to ask the question, who is Jesus? And in order to answer that question, who is Jesus, I want us to turn back to a verse that we looked at last week and we said we'd be coming back to this week. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1, and this is really where we'll spend the the most of our time here uh, this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And so listen as I read these very densely packed passage about who Jesus is. So Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so here's Paul, the Apostle Paul, the same author who wrote uh, to Galatians, to the church in Galatia that we've been going through and we're looking at here in Galatians 4 and 5. And Paul's writing to the church in Colossae. And it's a church that's been planted by somebody other than Paul. It's about 100 miles off the coast where Ephesus is, kind of what is in modern-day Turkey. And this city of Colossae is in a a kind of state of decline. It's a a town that's seen better days. The, The essential roads of commerce have kind of passed by them. They used to be central to the city, and now they've moved a little bit to the west. And so it's a city that's seen as better days, maybe like a modern-day Detroit or Pittsburgh. And in this young church that's never seen Paul face to face, he's concerned with them being drawn astray from false teachers within the church who were somehow minimizing the person of Christ. And how these teachers were minimizing the fullness of Christ was different than how the, church, the teachers, false teachers in Galatia were doing so. They were pointing in Colossae to a greater fullness that people could achieve by a religious experience. And so whether it's in Galatia and, P- and false teachers are pointing to circumcision or religious ceremonies, or in Colossae where the false teachers are pointing to this religious experience, in both cases they're trying to add to the gospel. Like we said from that Dane Ortland said so well, to help the gospel is to hurt the gospel. They're helping with religious experience, that then you can really experience the fullness of Christ. But Paul, he brings them there in Colossians chapter 1 to what the fullness of Christ really means. And that really answers the question, who is Jesus? So I want us to look at four ways that Paul answers. Now there's more in this passage, so we can spend a long time right here in this passage. But I want us to point us to, to four ways that that answers who is Jesus. And in doing so, with each of those ways, I want to draw our hearts in and I want us to ask the question, who do I say that he is? Who is the Savior? So let's answer this question. Who is Jesus? And the first thing that we see here is, who is Jesus? He is the image 
of the invisible God. Verse 15 says that very plainly. He is the image of the invisible God. And that word in the Greek uh, behind image is the word ikonos. And I, I say the word in Greek because you can clearly hear that's, that's where we get our word icon. You know, other religions have icons or idols that they set up in their temples that they're worshiping, that people have carved. And, and whether they've carved them intricately and they're just this most beautiful design, they, actually, they believe this is actually God or it's a picture of what God is like. But what we've seen throughout the scriptures is when God revealed himself, and we saw this last week as we saw the story in the design of scripture that God created, that there was a fall into sin. God gave a promise, and then the people were waiting for him to send his deliverer, his Messiah. What we see is God gave people rules. He gave them his commandments. And one of the things, one of the commandments he gave was he expressly forbade the making of images, graven images, of what God looked like, trying to take the invisible and make it visible. We could say even this morning, as we think about the incarnation of Christ, of Jesus taking on, God the Son taking on flesh, is that one of the reasons that perhaps he didn't allow the image to be, a graven image to be made is because he knew the end of the story, that God the Son was going to take on flesh and image, or that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the iconos of the invisible God. The invisible made visible. Now, we see that in John chapter 1 as well. At the beginning of John chapter 1, we see, uh, in the beginning was the Word, that's John 1, 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a little bit later, down in John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, God would do far better. The promise that God was making the fulfillment in Christ, why would he not expressly forbade them to, from having icons or images of him? Because he knew this son who was coming. He would be the image of the invisible God. He would come down to us. Which is really what we should consider as we think about how, how do I interact with Jesus? Who do you say that I am? We have to acknowledge he is the God who came down. He came down for you. Think about the grace of God, that it wasn't God standing up on a mountaintop saying, do all these things and achieve all of these spiritual experiences, all of these rituals, all of these ceremonies, do them all perfectly, and you can make your way up this mountain and you can get to me. That's what all the religions of the world are calling us to do. But God came down. He sent his son born of a woman. He didn't send us on a scavenger hunt. He didn't send us on a cosmic game of hide and seek. He came down to us. And when he came down, he found you. He found me. And he lifted our heads at some point in our life, whether it was like me when I was in college, when you were younger, maybe as a child, maybe into adulthood, at some point, your eyes were lifted up and you said, this is is truth. This is Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. And when Jesus came down to make his home with us, to dwell with us, he's inviting us into a relationship with him. 
You know, John chapter 15, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus came down so that he might dwell with us, God with us, Emmanuel, and that he might give us life. And so who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking you. Know that he's the image of the invisible God. He is made in flesh. He is God come down to save. So that's the first thing that we see is that Jesus, who is Jesus? He's the image of the invisible God. Second thing we see from Colossians is who is Jesus? He is the firstborn over all creation. And then a little later it says he's the firstborn from the dead. And of these two phrases, especially the first, firstborn over all creation, many false teaching or or heresies throughout the history of the church in these 2,000 years have arisen over that phrase. And they kind of point to this as, see, Jesus had a beginning. He is created. He is not God. Arius, in the fourth century, he, he taught that this means that God had to have been created, and this controversy that kind of arose from Arius gave rise to a council of Chalcedon when all of the church leaders came together and they said, we have to define from the scriptures what is the essential nature of Christ. And today, all the major branches of Christianity have agreed that there is an orthodox understanding, there is a true understanding of who Jesus is. And what they said was, he is eternally begotten of the Father. Begotten, kind of from, not made, of one being with the Father. And so theologians talk about Jesus having, uh, God the Son having, he's one person with two natures, human and divine. And so we, we can say the Son of God is truly God and he's truly man. He he didn't stop becoming God in order to become man, but he has two natures, God and man. They don't merge and make a third nature. They are, he is 100% God and he is 100% man. And now that he's taken on flesh, he remains forevermore with these two natures. And so it's not as if then when he rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven that he put off the flesh. He is forever the God-man 100% God, 100% man. You know, like one theologian, ancient theologian said, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. That is, there was a point in time and the fullness of time when God the Son took on flesh, when he was born of a woman. You know, Thomas Watson, a Puritan, he said this. I love this quote. I think I've quoted this almost every Christmas um, over these ten and a half years that we've been going as a church. Here's what Thomas Watson said. He said, That man was made in God's image was a wonder. But that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder. That the ancient of days should be born. That he who thunders in the heavens should cry in a cradle. But but we might ask ourselves a question. You might be sitting here and you might be reading from Colossians chapter 1. And you might ask yourself, how do we know that firstborn over creation doesn't mean that he just was born in creation and he's a great prophet, he's a moral teacher, he's, he's a wonderful person, but really, is he really God? 
Now, there's one way we can know that this is intending what Paul is intending to teach is because he could have, Paul could have used a different word in Greek if he wanted to communicate first created. So he could have used a different word. But also, Paul is picking up Psalm 89, which uses this same word, firstborn, as a messianic title. So for Jesus to be the firstborn is a way to communicate that he is the firstborn son of a king who has sovereign authority. He is firstborn over all creation. But just a few verses later, he uses that same word, firstborn, referring to the resurrection when he says firstborn, firstborn from the dead. And so Jesus tells us, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith because he conquered death. He took what was locking humanity in its grip into slavery and he was the first to conquer death because he was supreme over death and so he is the firstborn. He is the first to rise from the dead. So listen to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. The author of Hebrews tells us why did Jesus have to take on flesh and have to be fully man. He says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. So since we have flesh and blood, he partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he took on flesh so that he could lay down his life and destroy death. So he was the firstborn from the dead when he rose from the dead. So in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. And so next week we'll be talking about to redeem those under the law. That God the Son, Jesus, is Redeemer. He is Savior. And so he took on flesh so he could take on the curse that we were bearing because of our sin. He could, he could give to us the answer to the promise and we could have eternal life with him. He's supreme over death. Death could not stop him. It says here in Colossians chapter 1, he is preeminent, which means he is supreme. He is overall. He is first. Now, if you think back to that storm that the disciples were in, when the fear of the storm was stilled, when he said, peace, be still, and all of a sudden it was perfectly calm and quiet, they recognized, who is this one who controls the wind and the waves? Because he is preeminent, because he is supreme, they recognized that this means he is able to control all things he can control even these wind and even these waves. And their fear, it actually, their fear didn't cease. It switched. Their, their fear didn't cease from just kind of, over and, oh, everything's great now. They turned and realized there is something in the boat, someone in the boat that is far greater than we've ever realized. Who is this that he can control even the wind and the waves? Here's what we need to understand for ourselves. And if you're considering who Jesus is, or if we need to remind ourselves continually who Jesus is, if death can't stop Jesus, 
if wind and waves and storm are no match for Jesus, then everything that we fear can't stop him either. Look, look, we just need to stop right there because I don't know what fears are at the top of your mind and heart this morning. Maybe you have deep fears for one of your children, for a grandchild. Maybe you have fears for a friend who's suffering. Maybe you have fears for a friend who's walking away from their faith or from their marriage. Maybe you have fears of financial difficulties or ruin or stress or at work. Whatever you're, you're bearing with here today, we have to re- un- bearing under, and we have to remember if death can't stop Jesus, if he's able to control the wind and the waves, then everything that I fear can't stop him. He is supreme in your life. He is able to be trusted no matter what we're walking through. And so who is Jesus? He's the one who made new life possible because he came in the flesh, he died for for sin, he conquered death, and he showed he is preeminent. He is supreme. So who is Jesus? He's the image of God. Who is Jesus? He's the firstborn uh, of all creation and the firstborn from the dead. Who is Jesus? The third thing we see is he is sustainer. Now, we could talk about he is creator, which is clearly taught here as well, and he is sustainer, but I want us to focus really on just he is sustainer. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only did he speak and create all of the universes and all the galaxies, all of the, as some scientists would say, there are 600,000 trillion galaxies just expanding in the universe, this wide universe that we live in, and he created it all, and it says he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he's keeping the universe held together by the word of his power. He's the beginning. He's the end. And he's the sustainer in the middle. In verse 18, it says that he's the head of the body, the church. So not only did he create the church, but he also redeems a people and he's supreme over them and over all, of, all things. And he sustains his people just as he does the creation all around them. So not as only is he keeping gravity, acting like gravity right now, he's also keeping and sustaining his church. And, and in that way, if we've had time to, to stop and look at chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we see five times he's talking about all things. All things. Paul wants us to know there is nothing outside the sovereign creating and sustaining control of Jesus. And so what this tells us is Jesus must be the central point of our faith. Look, Christianity is not all about you. It's not all about me. It is not a person-centered faith. It is a God-centered faith. It is a Christ-centered that we see him. He's the central figure in the universe, the creator and the sustainer. And so the teachers that could have been tempting these Colossians to uh, turn past Jesus into a religious experience, they were wanting them to turn inward, just as the teachers in Galatia were, were as well. They wanted them to have a greater spiritual knowledge, and they didn't know what they were talking about because they were driving right past Jesus to get to some kind of 
trite religious experience. And so our call isn't to an experience, but to a person. And this person can be known. And this person knows us. And he knows us, he knows who we are, because he made us. You know, if, if you think about it, just kind of think about, and this is the time of year, this and Easter, when you start seeing stories on CNN and elsewhere and that we're starting to talk about who is this Jesus. And, and a lot of people point their fingers at Jesus and they want to define who he is. It can have nothing to do with what it says in the pages of Scripture, but who do they think Jesus is? And, and all the time, they're pointing their finger at Jesus and they're not considering he knows exactly who they are. That there's no hiding from him. That if they would be, or if we would be walking in a crowd with Jesus, like so often happened and is described in the Gospels, that at any point he could have turned to any person in that crowd and he could have pointed his finger at them and he could have called them by name and he would have known every single thing about them because he's their creator. If you think about it even this way, another step is the breath that the people around the cross had in their lungs that was filling their lungs that they could shout, crucify him. If he is before all things and in him all things hold together, even that breath was coming from him. And so he was willingly going to the cross, even to the point of keeping all things held together when the universe and the angels and heaven were groaning because they couldn't believe that the sovereign would lay down his life. He was still in control. He knows the hair on our head. He knows our strengths, our weaknesses. He knows our joy and our trials. He not only created the world, but he created you. And since he created you, you have value. Despite what anybody in your life might be telling you, you have value because you are created by God. And you're so valuable that he has sent, God the Father has sent his son to reveal himself to you. The one who is supreme, the one who sustains, he comes and he comes to you and he is gently calling you near to him. And you might say, look, Like, you don't know who I am. You don't know all the things going on in my life, and I don't, but he does, and your weaknesses are no match for his ability. And so he not only began the work in creation, he began a good work in you. And like Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, he will bring it to completion until the day he returns. And So just like he's able to hold all those millions of galaxies together, he's able to hold your life together. He's able to sustain you and to keep you holding on even when you think your your grip might fail, even when you think your faith might, might fail. He, like we sing, will hold you fast. And so who do you say that he is? He's the God who knows you. He's the God who created you. And he's the God who will sustain you. Do you trust in him? Well, lastly, here this morning, who is Jesus from this passage? We already touched on this, but we see it very clearly two times in Colossians. He is fully God. He is fully God. So look at verse 19, if you have your Bibles open. For in him, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. In Christ, all the fullness of deity. Chapter 2, verse 9. 
For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so what this is clearly telling us is Jesus is God. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. And what this is telling us is, he is Jesus is not a third God. God the Holy Spirit is a third God. And God the Father is a, whole, a third God. And kind of like Voltron, they come together to make God. You know, they, 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 Jesus is fully God. God the Holy Spirit is fully God. God the Father is fully God. One in essence, essence, three in personhood, distinct persons, yet each fully God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, says it this way, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, again, here's this like we saw in Colossians, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the radiance of the glory of God. You know, a lot of times theologians will point out that the moon doesn't give out light at all. It only can reflect light. But the sun, it radiates light because it's the source. It's the difference between just a substance and the source. One reflects, the other is the source of the light. And so if you're going to go into a cave and you're going to go spelunking, if you kind of strap a reflector to your head, that's going to do nothing when you get into the darkness. But if you have the lamp, the light, the source, you're going to have light all around. And so when we see that he is the radiance of the glory of God, we see that he is the light of the world. He alone is able to bring truth. He alone is able to bring meaning. And so what is the meaning of life has to have Jesus right at the center because he is the light of the world. You know, like we sing here at Christmas, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. What we should take from the nature of Jesus that we see here in the book of Colossians is that he is the image of God, the truest, the fullest, most visible demonstration of his glory, radiating the light of God. You know, 2 Corinthians 5 or 4 talks about how he is the radiance of the glory of God and is shining forth from him. And so if you want to know this invisible God, if you're looking up at the ceiling and you're wondering where is God, you need to look to who Jesus is. The one who's made, been made flesh, who's before all things and in whom all things hold together. And so the fact that Jesus is fully divine, that he is fully God, means that he is fully able to meet all that I need. We could say it in one word. He is sufficient. We're not sufficient. We reflect. He's the source. He is sufficient no matter what we find ourselves facing, whether it be temptation, whether it be death, whether it be discouragement, he is sufficient because he is fully God. And so here this morning, all of us should be asking continually, who is Jesus? Who do I say that he is? And in just these few verses of Colossians, Paul answers, he's the image of God. He's the firstborn of the, from, of, over creation and sustainer and firstborn over the dead and sustainer and he's the very fullness of God. So again, the question is turned back to you. Who do you say that he is? How will you respond? You can respond in faith 
and you can have light and life because he is the source even today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you reveal your son in such a way that he is very clear from the pages of Scripture. Thank you that Colossians chapter 1, it paints this picture of who Jesus is, that not only did you send forth your son born of woman, but we learn all of these truths about who he is. And so, Father, I pray that you would impress these truths onto our hearts, that we would run from just a mere looking to Jesus as a religious experience, looking to kind of the sentimentality of the season, thinking about Jesus as just a a small baby and how cute he is, or all these things that just the world might just point to. And we know, because we see in the pages of your word, he is fully God. He is the image of God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. He sustains us. He holds all things together, and we can trust him. And so, Father, would you increase our trust and our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.